They forgot the Lord their God and served Baals and the Harasim. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of, of Cushan Rishbian, king of the Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishbian for eight years. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but when, when the people of the Lord cried out to the uh, cried out to the Lord. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up and deliver, a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan. So... Uh, the land had rest. <laughs> 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 the Lord had rest forty years, and Othniel, the, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because he had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered uh, to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. Uh, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent, a tribute, uh, sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh uh, under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the pool of his roof chamber. Uh, and Ehud said, I have a message from God to you. Uh, and he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached out with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust into his belly. And the hilt was uh, also went in after the blade, and the fat and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. <laughs> then Ehud went into the porch and closed the door of the roof chamber behind him and locked and locked him. Uh, when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the roof door the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought. Surely he is revealing himself Relief. in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. Uh, when, he had, uh, when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped uh, while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he surrounded the trumpet, or he sounded the trumpet in the hill country. Of Ephraim. Then uh, the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able bodied men. Uh, not a man escaped. So Moab subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shmagmar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines uh, with an ox god, and he also saved Israel. <laughs> Good job, man. Oh, it's a good
these two. That was awesome. Quite <laughs> a nail biter there. <laughs> Not nails reading the uh, the scripture the story for the nail biter. Um, I love that story. It's so good. <laughs> Any of you guys nail bite? I I bite my nails sometimes. It's weird because it's, it's a habit I've broken like several times in my life. But the other day we were watching a movie and I found myself biting my nails. And firstly, I was like, when did I start doing that again? And secondly, you know, there's a hep A breakout in downtown. <laughs> and I started thinking, well, we've taken our kids and everybody, like my whole family's got the shot except me. And I'm the one sitting here biting my nails, which is a terrifying prospect. You guys have habits like that that creep up? And you're like, where did that come from? When did I start doing that again? Anybody? Some, yeah, some, some of them, they're normally not good habits. Nail biting, like it's kind of an innocent habit until you realize that there's a hep A breakout. You're like, this could kill me. Nail biting is dangerous and deadly. And uh, so, I, anyway, all that to say, it seems random that there was a point in it. And that is... That as you look at these stories of the judges, there's very different stories going on, three different stories, and we're going to get to those. But the one thing that kind of ties them all together is this broken, habitual cycle that just keeps coming around in Israel's life. It's this broken cycle, and it's, it's a cycle of generational degeneration. And it's like, how do they keep falling into the same problems? We'll see that as we go through the story of God at the end of this month. And we start to look from a bird's eye, when you're not just focused on one story in one person's life, but you kind of step back and you start to see, many people's lives, you start to see patterns, broken patterns. And it's all throughout the story of Judges. It starts out with Othniel, who's pretty much the best judge in the book, because he just doesn't screw up really bad. That's why he's the best judge. And it gets worse from there. And they go through cycle after cycle, and judge after judge, and each cycle, like Kenny was talking about last week, it's just a downward spiral to where at the bottom, when you get down there with Samson, you're like, there's not even any redeemable characteristics in this judge or in this part of the story. And the question that I have today is, how do we break these cycles? (laughs) Coffee's working. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, how do we break these cycles? Because the, the truth, I think, if, we, if we're honest, we realize as we look at their story, and we take a step back, we realize that their story is our story. In so many ways in our lives, all of us, we have these broken patterns. Broken patterns of sin that cycle back around. Habits that we thought were gone that come back and we're like, man, where did that come from? I'm biting my nails again. Not that biting my nails is sin. I'm just saying, we all can identify with that, yeah? Maybe it's an addiction, maybe it's a negative emotion, maybe it's something in your life, anxiety, fear, depression, things keep coming back around. Workaholism, alcoholism, sex addiction, love addiction. How do we break these sin cycles in our life? How do we avoid the generational degeneration that happens? in our lives. And the good news is that God has done something about it. God has done something about it that we're going to see in this text today. And I'm super excited to talk about it. I'm jumping up and down. And this story is going to show us how to respond, but there's a key. And I want you to say it with me the first time. The key to this whole text is this. Our responsibility, say it with me. Our responsibility is our response to God's ability. That was good. Kind of. That was good. <laughs> and, and here's what I mean. This story shows us how behind the scenes God is already at work. And God is doing things to bring revival into the middle of these broken cycles that they keep going into. And this story does not highlight the way that we're going to fix ourselves or how we can be the heroes of our own story. This story highlights how God is the great hero of this story and how our responsibility is to respond to his ability. How weak we are, how broken, how frail 
and yet how God uses us in great ways to bring about his work in our lives and in the world. So three responses that we're going to talk about over the next few minutes. And uh, it's, it's the response with our head, with our heart, and with our hands. The three ways we're going to respond to God to help break this cycle. And that is we remember with our head, we repent with our whole heart, and we respond to God with our hands. You tracking? All right, cool. Let's dive in. Point number one, remember. Remember what God has done. Remember what God is doing. Remember what God promises to do. Look at verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. So they forgot God. This is the beginning of this broken cycle. They forgot God, and because they forget him, they forsake him for false gods. And then when they turn their back and they forsake him, their life starts to fall apart. That's the beginning of the cycle. So it starts with forgetting. How's it start? Forgetting. All right, cool. In the Bible, remembering and forgetting have spiritual significance. And here's what I mean. This is a story, and uh, I think actually last time you were here visiting, I talked about this story. And it's this is an amazing story from the Exodus where... You guys remember the, this awesome moment where God says, stand still and know that I'm God? And the Egyptians are closing in on Israel's backside, and there's mountains on either side, the left and the right, and there's a Red Sea in front of them. And they're freaking out. They don't know how they're going to get out of the situation. And God says, stand still, know that I am God. And he puts a pillar of fire between them and the Egyptians, and the wind blows all night. And the waters of the Red Sea part and they walk around, walk, walk across on dry ground. And they get to the other side and then here come the Egyptians pursuing them. And God lets the waters close in and crash on top of them and destroys Pharaoh, destroys his chariots, destroys his army. And all that fear and terror they were feeling turns into praise and worship because God did something amazing, right? You would think that if God did that for you, that you would just be like, all right, no matter what you ask me, I'm going to trust you. But is that, is that their story? No. Over and over, they test him in the wilderness. They doubt him. He gives them food from the clouds. He gives them water from a rock. And they still doubt him over and over. In fact, when Moses takes a few days and goes up with God to get the Ten Commandments on the top of the mountain, it's just too long for them to handle and they take all their gold and they fashion an idol to worship because they need something they can see and experience and feel and taste. And God seems so far away. So they forget God and then they forsake him for false gods. And their lives start to fall apart. And so God tells them because they later on, of course, they doubt again. They don't want to go into the promised land. There's giants over there. We can't do it. So God says, look, I'm going to let you guys wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. The entire generation is going to pass off the scene, and your kids are going to go in and possess the land. And so there's this awesome moment in Joshua chapter 4 where they're getting ready to cross over and go again and fight the battle of Jericho, where they don't actually fight. They just walk around the walls, and God does something amazing. Right? They just respond to what God tells them to do. But they get to the Jordan, and... Uh, Jordan's overflowing all of its banks. It's the time of harvest. And God tells him, this time when you go through the Jordan, I want you to do something different. I'm going to part the waters. You're going to walk across on dry ground. But when you do, I want you to take 12 stones out of the, the base of the Jordan, one for each tribe, and take them to where you're going as a memorial so that you won't forget that I did this for you. Because you're so forgetful. And now here's the thing. What's it mean to forget? Because when we say forgetting and remembering is a spiritual activity, what's it mean? Did they actually forget that God existed? Did they actually forget even the story that he delivered? No. Here's what happened. They stopped living like it was true. Their hearts grew cold and distant from that truth. They stopped intentionally engaging with it and living in such a way that it was affecting their heart. 
Those things weren't real to them anymore. And that's not just a huge problem for them way back then. That's a huge problem for us. We know certain things in our heads that's true about God, but oftentimes they don't seem very real to our hearts. And so they don't work their way out into our hands and into our, to our lives. We may acknowledge intellectually that God is sovereign, he's in control, but then we find ourselves panicking about this situation. We've forgotten that he's in control. Yeah, we can say it, but we've stopped living like it's true. It's stopped affecting us. When we don't remember what God has done and is doing and will do, we're on a slippery slope. And here's what I mean. The moment our heads forget, our hearts immediately fall off. Our heads forget these truths. You know, the Bible says taste and see that the Lord is good. We stop tasting and seeing, and then our hearts start looking for something to taste and see and experience. And our hearts forsake God and turn to false gods. And then our lives start to fall apart. Forgetting always leads to false worship. Kenny pointed that out last week. He said, what God calls evil is a twofold decision to forget him and forsake him for false gods. And you start, you start worshiping just whatever catches your attention. Kind of like a, a bucket of water on a cold day and the ice starts to form. How do you keep the ice, how do you keep it from freezing over? You keep breaking the ice, right? And that keeps the water from freezing over. Or if you see concrete trucks driving down the freeway, what, what's happening with that big cylinder in the back? It's not technically a cylinder, is it? Does anybody know what that shape is called? The giant football on the back. It's turning, right? I'll never forget the time we were remodeling our home back in East County before we moved to downtown. I got uh, level quick from Home Depot, and I had to level the floor so we could lay the, lay the flooring on top. And so I'm sitting, I didn't know how to do this. So I'm stirring it with a stick. I'm going over and pouring it out. And I'm stirring it with a stick, going over and pouring it out. And I go to stir it with a stick, and the stick won't move. <laughs> right? Why? Because I stopped stirring the concrete, and it hardened. And that's a picture of our hearts. Our hearts are on a default course away from the truths of God. They're constantly growing cold and calloused and hardened to the ways of God and the truth of God. So what do we do? Um, Becky Pipper, I love love this quote that Kenny pointed out last week. She says this, Whatever controls us is the Lord of our lives. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who lives for acceptance by others is controlled by people that he or she seeks to please. But one thing is certain. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. When our hearts grow hard to God's truth, we start looking for something to set our affection and our hope on. And anything can become that. Any good thing can become a God thing. Your grades at school. It's not bad to want good grades. But that can become a God thing in your life. Something you're willing to sacrifice everything else for. Right? Your paycheck at work. Our kids and their potential, our, our clothes in the closet, and what they say about us. Right? Our food and the comfort or the pleasure that we seek through it. The, our political opinions. Our relationships. The number of followers on our Instagram or Twitter. Our homes and the value of our home or the neighborhood of our home or the design and decoration of our home, any part of our home can become an idol to us, our investment portfolio, or our investment in the kingdom work, like your hours of charity work, your time card, you know, your, your, your level of church involvement can become a false god in your heart. Yeah. Yeah. And the pool is constantly happening, and it's, it's, our hearts are constantly growing hard, in, and we're constantly forsaking God in little areas of our life that we don't even realize. Just like I didn't realize, I'd started biting my nails in. Because we can feel the comfort from those things. We can taste their pleasure, and we can see the security that they offer us, and we can experience their affirmation and praise. And before we know, know it, we've made good things into God things. And we're in the throes of idolatry and false worship. 
And that cycle always begins the same way. We forget God and we start looking for something else we can take. So what can we do? The key is this. God is at work. So our responsibility is our response to God's ability. And our first response to God's ability is to remember how good he is. Remember how faithful he is. To take time and just praise him and worship him and remember all the things he's at work doing in our lives. Look at 1 Peter 1, or I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1. And we just read this in CBR, so this stood out in my mind. Um, Peter is talking about, to Christians, he, he's talking to them um, about growing uh, in their character and their uh, kindness and their self-control. 1 Peter 1, 5 through 7. But, but what if they don't? What does Peter tell him? He says, guys, you're not trying hard enough. You need to try hard. Is that what Peter says? No, look at verse 9. What's he say? If anyone does not have these qualities, you're not kind, you're not self-controlled, you don't look like Jesus. If you don't have these qualities, he's forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sin. And so what's he said? Look at verse 11, scroll down, or 12, I'm sorry. I will always remind you of these things even though you know them. So Peter is saying that if the grace of Christ is real to you, then you'll live it out in your character and in your life. In other words, the point is, we we need to be regularly reminded of God's grace at work in our life, of these truths that we already know. I know sometimes it's like, you you ever hear a sermon on something that you already heard a sermon on, and you're like, I want to hear something new. And exciting. We'll get to that. We will, I promise. Ehud is in, yeah, that Ehud, Ehud, is that how you said it? Ehud? I think that's how you should pronounce it, personally. That's an exciting story. But there's a truth behind that story, and it's this. We constantly fall into these cycles, and we need God to rescue us. We need to remember what he's doing. So the Israelites' biggest problem is our biggest problem today even those of us who believe in Christ and have the Holy Spirit. How can we make sure we remember? Three suggestions, real quick. Um, communion. Every week at the Sunday gathering, we gather together and we partake in the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, as often you do this, do this in what? Remembrance. Remembrance of me. Why? Because he knew that our hearts are on that trajectory, to, the default to go cold and hardening. And he says, no, come, gather your life around the good news of the gospel. Again, remember that I lived a perfect life every day in my flesh for you. So it's not about your works. This isn't works-based righteousness. And I died a death that atoned for you, forgives you for all of your sins. So as you drink that wine, that grape juice, it reminds you of my blood spilled out for you to to purchase you back from the dead. We need constant reminders of that. Amen? But once a week's not enough. We need daily reminders. How can we get those? Well, Scripture. Scripture, as you engage. And as a church, we read Scripture together um, through a program called CBR, City Bible Reading, which if you don't know about that, we have journals and pens and all kinds of cool stuff we'd love to give you to get you on board with that. It's really fun. You read a couple of chapters a day, and you get to engage with other Christians about what God is saying to you through His Word. We don't go to the Word as just this dry book. We engage with Christ there. And we take these truths and we meditate on them, and we reflect on them, and we begin to live like they're true in our lives. We let the truth of the gospel warm our hearts every day so it doesn't grow cold again. And turn our hearts over so it doesn't grow hard again. You tracking? And the third thing I would say, and this is something that I kind of missed from my Pentecostal background. Anybody ever go to a testimony service? Yeah, testimony service. I mean, I kind of miss it. I kind of miss it because some of those testimony services like veer off really quick. And you know, you'd see the preacher kind of nervously standing there trying to get the mic back from Sister So-and-so, and she's going for like 30 minutes about how she stubbed her toe that week. You know, ah, no more testimony services, Dad. Right? My dad was a pastor. Um, but there's something about stewarding the stories that God gives us. Sharing evidences of grace of his work in our lives. Where are we doing that? You know, the benefit that we get from that is not only do we remember 
as we recount it to other people, but we build their faith in God. We help direct their eyes from the brokenness around them in their life that has pulled their attention from God over here. And we help redirect their vision back to God who's yeah. able to do anything. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. So I want to encourage us as a church to be stewards of the stories of grace that God gives us. To constantly be reminding one another where God is at work in our lives and sharing those. The Bible says, let the redeem of the Lord say so. Say so. Yeah. It's a good song. So our first response to God's faithfulness is we remember. Secondly, we repent from false worship to true worship, back to God. So it says here, they forgot God. They forgot who he was and what he'd done. Can you have a picture of the cycle here? Uh, yeah. So that's the picture that Kenny threw up last week, the cycle that you see throughout Judges. I'll explain it really quickly. In the white boxes you have, they have this continual cycle. They go from sin to servitude, or, uh, throwing away in other nations, and then they cry out. And God brings salvation, and there's a time for us of silence. But the the thing that happens kind of around that cycle is they forget. And that's why they fall into sin and they forsake God. That's what we're talking about. And eventually their lives fall apart. So that's that's what we do. (laughs) God is at work. He's faithful, but sometimes... He starts revival, and that's this furious part that we're going to talk about here, right? What does God do when we forsake him, when we break God's heart with idolatry, which this scripture always parallels with adultery? We forsake the covenant, we stop remembering him, we go after other lovers, right? God starts a revival. That's what he does. But he does it in an unexpected way. Look at verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And just a quick note, that Hebrew word for anger of the Lord, the anger of the Lord was kindled, it means God's nose grew hot. (laughs) Which is, I just like that. That's one thing I love about Hebrew language. It's so picturesque. But if you have, I have a friend like this, maybe you do, when they get angry, their nostrils flare. Yeah, so maybe you can relate. No name calling here. <laughs> the anger of the Lord was kindled. God's nostrils flared. What did he do? And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim for eight years. So God gives them over to their desires. He gives them over to their idols. He sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathim. So just as they'd already sold themselves into slavery to these idols, spiritually, internally, God says, okay, we're going to let the physical reality reflect that spiritual reality that you have going on in your life. God says, I'm going to let your life reflect what you've done in your heart. So I turn you over to these idolatrous nations who made these idols that you're serving. And they turn their, their backs on God. And God says, have it your way. As you guys always say, if you love something, set it free. So I'm setting you free. You can go your own way. Just kind of quote random (laughs) cultural lines. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. Even in judging, God is acting kindly to his people. Think about it. Think about it. If God hadn't allowed suffering, in difficulty, would these people have just magically turned back to him? No way. Of course not. Without God intervening, they would have never seen themselves as they were. They would have never seen how spiritually enslaved they were. They would have never seen the judgment they were facing. So God lovingly lets them taste that judgment by allowing them physical enslavement for a season. They forgot him. They forsook him for false gods. So he lets their lives fall apart. God allows discomfort and struggle sometimes because he loves them and wants them to turn back to him. And God often does the same thing in our lives. But when we're judged, look at this verse uh, from Paul in, in 1 Corinthians. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
So is Paul saying that when we go through trials, we're being condemned or that we're being disciplined? Disciplined. And let me say a couple things here to clarify this, because this is a hard point, and this subject deserves its own sermon series, let alone a small section in the sermon. But we all go through trials. Not every trial is God showing you idols. Okay? But sometimes he is. And every time that God allows trials in our life, the scripture says he's allowing it for your ultimate good. So trials are not a direct result of your sin. If you go through a trial, you don't have to start looking around and saying, where did I fail God? That's bad theology. Right? We don't believe in a workspace theology. That you have good day, bad day Christianity, and on your bad days, God judges you, and on your good days, God blesses you. That's not the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is that Jesus took your punishment on the cross. Amen? Yeah. So don't get it twisted. But even though God isn't condemning you through trials, often God is at work through difficulty, correcting your path out of love and helping redirect you to, to free your hearts from those idols that would diminish your life and to turn your hearts to him as the source of you tracking? Yeah. Just look at this story. Is, is, is there difficulty that they're facing? Is this God hating them? Is this God's vengeance toward them? No, no. God isn't punishing them because he's done with them. God is correcting them because he loves them. He's doing this for them, for their ultimate good. And that is our promise. Romans 8 says, And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, who are the call according to his purpose. So not everything is good, but the promise is that God is working everything together for you. Ultimately, God is at work saving your life, loving you, blessing you, pouring out his grace on you, reshaping you into his image and repurposing everything that comes your way for your good. That's the truth. God is at work bringing revival into your life. And sometimes, because he loves you, he says, have it your way. You turn from me, you turn to face this thing, and you're trying to find a life in your credit, your paycheck, all those things you listed. And I'm going to let you see the end of it so you'll turn back to me. You see that that's a God that doesn't have eyes to see, doesn't have ears to hear, can't answer your prayer. It's not going to save your life. When God shakes up your life sometimes, he's graciously revealing where we place our hope besides him because he loves you more than you love yourself. We tracking? All right, cool. God's already at work. He's saving us from ourselves. So what do we do? Again, our responsibility is our response to God's ability. When God holds up a mirror to our lives, when God lets our lives be shaken up, when God reveals our false gods to us, how do we respond? repent. We turn around. We turn from the things that are diminishing our lives and we place our affection back on him. Harold Best says it this way in a book called Unceasing Worship, which if you like long words, you should definitely read, but it's a great book. Um, I love this section of it. He says this, just as God eternally outpours within his triune self, and as we are created in his image, it follows that we too are continuous outpourers, incurably so. But man's fall into sin means that we spend our outpouring on false gods, appearing to us in any number of guises. At this very moment, and for as long as the world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone, an artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ. But nobody does not worship. What's he saying? He's saying you're a continuous outpourer. You're always... Worshiping. You can't turn it off. It's like a, it's like a fire hose, right? It's, it's not about you like building up worship in, your, uh, in yourself and, and making it happen. You're always worshiping. You're always putting your hope and trust in something. It's just about directing it. Repentance is about redirecting it. Tim Keller says it this way. Repentance is the process of recognizing where your worship already is and transferring it to God. Placing your ultimate value on him. And guys, if you do that, that'll change your life. Yeah. All right? So that's the first two. 
What's our response to God's work in our lives? We remember His faithfulness, His goodness with our heads, and we repent with our whole heart. And thirdly, we respond with faith in God's abilities, not ours. And that's what happens in these two stories. As we look at these three stories, and I know you've been waiting on the edge of your seats to talk about these stories, especially Ehud, because it's a very colorful story. Okay, but in this chapter, there's three people that God is acting to uh, deliver Israel through. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. And notice, these judges aren't the heroes of the story. Like we said, they're just responding to God's abilities. More than anything else, the author highlights God in his activity. And just think about this. like Even the way he structures this chapter, there's uh, 20, what is it, 25 verses we just read, and the term the Lord or Yahweh, the one who saves, occurs 13 times. That's, that's every other verse. And so God is the one at work. God is the hero. He chooses to use people for his purpose. And Othniel, by far, is the best judge in this book. Othniel's like, in the book of Judges, he's like the foil, the backdrop against which all these other judges are going to be compared. Okay? And Othniel, the story is kind of short. He's not perfect. He's a good judge, and he leads God's people to victory through his popularity. He's able to unite all of Israel to come against this horrible king, Cushan Rishathim, which means Cushan, the doubly wicked one. So this guy's not the guy you want to go up against, but God empowers him with his Holy Spirit. And he gathers Israel together against this mighty king, and God gives them victory. And God gives them this time of peace. But the problem with Othniel is this. He's not immortal. And after 40 years, he dies. And what happens? Israel, yeah, Israel forgets God. And Israel forsakes God for false gods, and their lives fall apart. And so God sends enemies, Eglon of Moab with the Amalekites and the Ammonites. And Israel's enslaved for 18 years this time. And finally, they cry out for help, and God raises up Ehud. And I love this story of Ehud because he's a surprising choice. Not just because he's left-handed. <laughs> Two of my favorite people in the world that I work with every week are lefties. And um, I love lefties. I think our society takes it way easier on lefties than any other society ever has. Like, we make left-handed scissors. Right? Other societies haven't. But I still feel bad for every time you guys try to write. You know, you got to have the special pins that don't smear because you're dragging your hand across it. But it's, it's difficult to be a lefty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking of an experience of which I know nothing. Um, but I do meet with you guys every time, and I like to sit on the right side, because otherwise I'm always bumping elbows with you all. Anyway. Um, but the, our society is super cool with lefties. In fact, lefties, I think, get kind of a little prestige in our society. They're more creative, and they have this kind of elusive, mysterious nature about them. Oh, I have... Like, I have baseball cards with my friends and how many lefties I have, you know, like collector's items for me. <laughs> I don't, I'm sorry. Okay, that's, I don't actually do that, of course. But in this society, in this society, uh, lefties are not prized. Um, in fact, biblically, if you look up references to the right hand, it's always positive, right? Left hand was seen as negative in biblical culture. Right hand was seen as positive. Right hand, like to sit at somebody's right hand was a place of honor. To say, uh, could I be on your right hand? Or to say somebody was somebody's right hand man. Well, even in our culture, that means something, right? The person of strength and effectiveness. But Ehud is a lefty in this society. And his, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which first of all is the least of all the tribes. Um, and you'll see that throughout the book of Judges. Like, the tribe of Benjamin does some really shoddy stuff. But also, the tribe of Benjamin, you know what it means? Son of my right hand. So, like, even his family name was like, the people on the right hand, he's the lefty from it. And he gets no respect, respect from Eglon's guards, right? Because he goes in to talk to the king, and they're like, eyes ah, a lefty. Don't, don't even worry about it. Like, they didn't even scan to see if he had a sword hidden crazy. Right? Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm rambling a little. Sorry. This part was just, it just says share Ehud's story. That's it in my notes. So this could go, this could go really out. 
Um, there's actually a word, too, that when it describes him being left-handed that, um, that could be translated disabled. It, it says he had no use in his right hand. So he had, at the very least, is a lefty in a right-handed world from a right-handed tribe. It doesn't fit in. He's not the obvious choice. Possibly even disabled, which in that society would even, like, man, what? you're not useful. Older society. Broken. No way of treasuring people and loving them for the way, the specific way that God's chosen to make them. He would have been considered ineffective or defective. So no one would have looked at this guy as the natural choice to follow him. And yet, he's God's choice. Amen? And Eglon, the king of Moab, is very fat. That's what it says. It's like, come on, God, why are you body shaming the guy? You know? But I don't think body shaming is the point of God and what he's bringing out in this story. is actually a point to the fact that Eglon was very fat. And a couple of things. First of all, his name means fat, and it means cow. So he's like the fattened calf. There's physical humor in this story. You have to embrace it. You, have, you just have to. It's, it's kind of like uh, Chris Farley, one of my favorite comedians ever. He was very funny. He was a little more funny because of the way he looked, right? So I think there's part of this that you just have to embrace physical humor in this story and something that the, the author is using as a narrative device. So he's very fat, and there's actually a point to this. He's this fatted calf that God has prepared for sacrifice. He's grown fat on Israel's tribute. And Ehud gets a private audience from him, and he says the most awesome line ever. It should be in a Quentin Tarantino movie. I have a message from God for you. <laughs> and I wish I could, like, channel Samuel L. Jackson's voice when I say that. And he reaches in to his right thigh with his left hand, pulls out a sword, stabs it so deep it comes out the back, the fat gathers around it, he can't pull it out, and verse 22 says, and the dung came out. Um, yeah. Why, God? Little TMI there. Thanks. Um, but, but we need to be biblical, okay? Thoroughly biblical, so we need to cover every verse. The dung came out. There was a purpose for that in the story, actually. Because as Ehud locks the door, runs out and escapes off the balcony and starts heading back for Israel, the servants are gathered out around the king's room. And they're like, you want to check on it? I don't want to check on it. And it's obvious, like, they probably smell something going on, right? And they're like, dude, I'm leaving this alone. Let the man have his time. You know, and finally, they just start, it says they get embarrassed. They can't handle it anymore. They're like, dude, we got to check on it. Get the key, they open the door, and there he is dead. Meantime, Ehud has escaped. And he's blown the trumpet or the horn. And Israel has come out, and now uh, something amazing happens. God takes a very unlikely person, and all of Israel is ready to follow him. And they overthrow the Moabite captivity. They kill over 10,000 Moabite soldiers who come against them. God gives them amazing victory, and they have peace for 80 years. And then there's the story of Shamgar, which I'll keep short because it's only one verse anyway. So he... Um, he, he has an ox goad, which is basically like a cow, cattle prod, right? And he comes after these Philistines and kills 600 of them with a farming instrument. Um, one quick point about Shamgar is that it says he was the son of Anath, which is not a Hebrew name, but it is an ancient world name. It meant the god of war. And these sons of Anath are actually seen, and if, if you look at some scholarly uh, work around Egypt in times like this, they were mercenaries hired by Pharaoh. So there's a chance he was an Israelite, but more than likely, most historians agree, Shamgar wasn't even an Israelite. He's a person totally from outside the family. But God used him in an amazing way to, to free Israel and, and to uh, bring another time of peace. And here's, here's the main point of this. Right? This is the third R we talked about with Kent, we talked about um, I'm sorry, uh, remember, repent, and now we're talking about respond. The main point is God wants to use you 
not just in spite of your weaknesses, but often in and through your weaknesses. Somebody else couldn't have accomplished what Ehud did because, because of the weaknesses he had, and God used him mightily. You guys know stories about that, even in modern times? People who would have perceived weaknesses from our perspective, and yet God uses them in profound ways to do things we can never do? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what your weakness is. I don't know if it's maybe your own spiritual life. Maybe you feel sinful or addicted or broken. Some of us have inabilities, and we, we, we look at our inabilities and we say, man, I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the popularity. I don't even have the greed. I don't have the money that can make a difference. Or I don't have the time. I don't have enough time to dedicate to really making a difference in the world. I don't have any experience. I'm damaged goods. I have... Too many issues. I don't know enough about scripture. I, I have a disability. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm not connected enough. No, 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 no. God wants to use you. The main point that I see in this part of the story is that it's not about you. It's about God. And God doesn't need our abilities. Our responsibility is it to have it all together and perfect our abilities? What's our responsibility? Our responsibility is our response to God's ability to be able to step out in faith in what God is calling you to do, regardless of what your perceived weaknesses or strengths might be. Paul picks up on this in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, and he says this, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And in the next letter, he says almost the same thing about himself. He says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you say that today? That it's not about you, it's about God. Or do you find yourself hiding your weaknesses and flaunting your strengths? Do you have more faith in your abilities? Do you have more faith in your inabilities? than you do in God's ability. The point is this. God is just looking for some willing people who will respond to him. That's what he uses to break cycles and bring change into the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. God is at work through us. Our responsibility is our response to God's ability. So what is our response to God's ability? We remember him in our minds. We repent from idols with our whole hearts, and we respond wholly to him with our hands and our lives. But there's one more problem that we have to talk about. And that is this. How many of us ever perfectly respond to God? Like, how many of you remember God 24-7? He's just always on your mind, and your hearts never struggle with growing cold or callous or hardened. Anybody? How many of you worship God perfectly, and you never turn to false things? and never try to find your hope and value in things in this life? Or how many of you always respond to God perfectly and always obey everything he tells you to do all the time? Anybody? No! One. We got one. <laughs> one ticket. The bad news is, even if we're simply called to respond to God's ability, we even fail at that. That's why this cycle is a downward spiral. So the question is not only how do we break the cycle, but how, how does this cycle not become a downward spiral in my life? How as I'm going through cycles of sin and brokenness and addiction and negative emotions, do I not lose hope in the middle of it? 
The good news is, if our hope was contingent upon us, our response, even our best efforts, would still end in a downward spiral, and our lives would begin to look like the book of Judges by the end, more broken than before, more hopeless than before. But there's good news, really, really good news. But the point of Judges isn't that our hope is in us. Judges points ahead to a perfect judge who came in our place and did what we can't do. In fact, all of the judges here point us to him. And Isaiah shows us how in his Messianic prophecy, one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. Because when you look at somebody like Shamgar, he, or I'm sorry, Othniel, Othniel first, he won through popularity. He was able to bring all of Israel around, but Jesus won through rejection. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with and one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Othniel went through popularity, Jesus went through rejection. Ehud went through cutting words and manipulating the circumstances, but Jesus went through silence and submission, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before his shears of silence, so he opened eyes. And Shamgar went through strength. He took a farming tool and beat his enemies with an unlikely weapon. But Jesus went through weakness by being beat by his enemies. And their weapons destroyed his body. Isaiah 53 says, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Jesus was the most unlikely judge. Like all these judges, God sent them and they helped deal with the effects of our sin. But Jesus came as a perfect judge to deal with the cause of our sin, right? And you may be struggling with these ongoing cycles in your life. And Jesus shows us a couple of things. He shows us that God is working on our behalf no matter how bleak the circumstances seem. Because Jesus came and faced our bleakest circumstances. He faced our darkest hour. He took our broken cycles on himself at the cross. He became them. He became sin. And then he was crushed under our cycles for us. I'm going to read this last part from Isaiah. As the squeaking goes on outside. (laughs) It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and out of anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many. Everybody say, that's me. Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The gospel is that Jesus lived a perfect life in your place and died a death that we should have died. He never fell into the cycle, but the cycle fell on him and crushed him at the cross. Jesus never forsook God. He never forgot God, but God allowed him to fall apart at the cross for us. He bore the weight of the cycle for us so we could be free from it. And because of that, in Jesus, we have a promise that our cycles don't have the last one. Because we have a judge who conquered them for us by allowing himself to be crushed under them. And the story's not finished there. The gospel doesn't finish with the cross. What's it finished? Three days later, yeah. Jesus rose victorious over sin and death forever. Now, why does that matter to the story? Because what was the biggest problem with judges? God would use them and then they would die. We need a judge who's going to live forever. And the good news is, in Jesus, we get a judge who's reigning right now over our lives. The good news is that nothing is too strong for you. Nothing will conquer you or destroy you. Right? People's eyes begin to form on their hearts. They forgot and they forsook God and they fell apart. We need a judge who lives forever. And because of the gospel, here's the solution. The gospel breaks our cycles and promises us that even in our cycles... We're in an upward spiral, an upward progression, not a downward spiral. If you believe the gospel, if you believe the gospel, just take a second and close your eyes. I want you to think back on your life. I want you to think back on who you were, like Paul was saying, when Jesus found you. 
Sure, you may still struggle, but are, are you better off now or worse off than you are? Does your life look more like Jesus or less? Now imagine 20 years from now, you'll look back. Can you imagine seeing how much further God has brought you? And even if you struggle your whole life long in these cycles, it's just a drop in the bucket for eternity. In that eternal kingdom where we will be free from these cycles once and for all. And Jesus, the perfect judge, will reign. The Bible's clear. In the end, we win. Amen? He's the author and finisher of our faith. He began a good work in us, and he will see it through to completion. So don't give up. Scripture, James 1, says this in closing. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to read this, but I'm going to. Um, Romans 8, in the message, just just uh, brief, a few verses here that I want to read. And I just want this to, I didn't put it on the screen, I just want it to marinate on your heart about the hope that we have in Christ. About the fact that in the end we win because he won for us. He says this, we can be sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. God knew what he was doing from the beginning. He decided from the outset to shape our lives um, the lives of those who love him according to the same lines as the life of his son. This son stands first in the line of humanity that he restored. And we see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. And he called them by name and he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, He stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he begun. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our broken condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would even dare point a finger at you? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way, no, no trouble, no hard times, not hatred. Not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying, not threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. I hope that hope is burning in your gut right now. I hope it's warming and melting your heart right now and pulling your eyes back to look at your Savior in the gospel. Now, I want to invite you to respond as the musicians come. I want you to come down here today and remember the faithfulness of your God through communion. And maybe there's some things in your life that it's time to repent from. Maybe as we were talking, you said, man, there's some things in my life that good things that have become God things. I want you to be able to come down and repent. And we've got a prayer team that's going to be down here that would love to pray over you. And help you repent and help you connect with the grace that is yours in Christ. And remind you of the goodness of God. And maybe today, God is calling you not just to... Remember him with your head and repent with your heart and respond with your hands. Maybe God is calling you to do something that may be beyond your own ability to do. So that his grace may be perfect in your weakness. I'm going to challenge you to listen and say, Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life that you would redirect and challenge me to do? Let me say a prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace. Forgive me for going a little long with it. Um, and I pray that 
you would speak to each of our hearts right now. Holy Spirit, apply the word to our heart in that close and intimate and personal way that words from the pulpit never can. I pray you challenge us. Challenge us where we're comfortable. Challenge us where we've got blind spots. Challenge us to remember you and repent and respond to your grace. And invite us, Lord, into this life of Christ. Maybe some people are going to get invited for the first time today. Maybe somebody here who's never heard or never believed the gospel, I pray that you would tug with their heartstrings and pull them up, that they come down here and take communion for the first time and profess faith in you. And maybe for a lot of us, it's the thousandth and first time. Because we need to be reminded over and over again of the gospel. And I pray that you would just warm our hearts with it. Not let it be distant truths with familiar words that we've grown cold to. Turn our hearts over, break the ice off. In your name we pray. This is the time of you. Amen.